Eric Veal with the AppsJack Capable Communities Podcast, and I am coming to you from Seattle, Washington, which is home of Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Boeing, and an incredible startup ecosystem that rivals Silicon Valley. Each episode, I bring on friends and guests who are executives and business leaders from the local community and around the world to talk about a topic that we find very interesting. Please enjoy this episode. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us today. This is Eric Veal with the AppsJack Capable Communities Podcast. And uh, today we're here to talk about delivering products and services. Just as a quick recap, last time we were here, we talked about sales and marketing. And so now we're out of the sales and marketing realm and we're just talking about how do we go about actually delivering what we sold and supporting the sale through a valuable and good delivery. What follows this topic, which we won't be going into too much detail today, is managing customer service. So once you actually delivered, then then what? And how do you manage your your uh, audience and population of people that have used your service? So I'm Eric Veal, and uh, in the studio with me today is... Uh, my name is Josh Bosworth. I'm a software engineer uh, with Discovery Channel. And I'm uh, Stephen Kabaki. I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm DevOps engineer Ellie Moon Jelly. I work for JPL and have an open source organization called Devopracy dedicated to civic tech. Software engineer, founder and principal of Scenario Technology, Andrew Sengel. And uh, so, yeah, it's great to have everybody in the studio with me today. It's a sunny spring day in Seattle. And uh, so it's great. great. This is the biggest uh, set of guests we've ever had on the show, but uh, we just kind of pre-funked a little bit. So hopefully it'll be, be pretty fun. And to just kick it off, we wanted to basically spend the first uh, 15 to 20 minutes or so talking about basically what, what does it mean, what is delivery, what, what, uh, what are the differences between delivering a product and delivering a service. So anybody here as a guest, if you want to kind of jump in on your thoughts about what's either interesting in this category or what are some significant differences that we see between supply chain management for products and building physical goods like a boat uh, versus just services, you know, consulting, cutting hair, whatever it might be. So, so let's just kind of, for our audience, explain what we see this, this category as. Well, I've been the consultant for the last couple of years, and I know that the consultancy where I was working, we were moving away from services, consulting services, and trying to create a product out of our consultations. We didn't really want to be in the position as an innovation consultancy of providing just somebody to sit in a chair, a staff augmentation. And in fact, our customers nowadays really don't want that either. What they were looking for is to bring somebody in, get a specific job done, and be able to have some knowledge transfer after it. And so bundling services into a product was kind of a critical trend that I've noticed. And, and it sounds, so to me, this is on my mind is, it seems like there's a, a theme toward going to everything as a service, but then you, you paint the exact opposite distinction of going from services to product. So why, like, what are we trying to do? So we can, it, the old model, I think, or the idea of service I think that everybody recognizes at this point that there was a point in with a lot of services where you ended up with golden handcuffs. We talk start talking about closed source versus open source software and one of the influences of the open source community is that 
there is this idea that you can manage your own at some point, whereas in the proprietary field, it was always like, we'll take care of you. And yet that's limited in distributed systems, in modern systems, where we're all reliant on each other's APIs. The opportunity to fail at the intersection during the glue code, the intersection of your service with another service, means that what we really want is to make sure that our services, as they interact, are discrete. And we want to be billed discreetly as well. So each service is a product. Like It's best to think of the service as a product just so we have a common metaphor that the quality of the thing can be defined as a product and has similar attributes. And, and you can no longer today like sell something that's going to be golden handcuffs. You know, that used to be the model was that you'd get somebody on board with a service and keep them there forever. And we just don't see that as something that executives will buy into anymore. Well, the thing with some of those golden handcuff services is that when they become economically infeasible for the uh, owner to maintain, they become more like cement overshoots. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. So, so that's, uh, again, we're just trying to introduce what is the delivery of products and services. And so I, I mentioned this before we kicked it off um, on, on, on the air here that the basic process here, we're looking at supply chain management and really, I think, the flow of goods and services. It's, you can look at it as economics in many ways. There's other parts of business that are required like we've been through on the podcast of vision and strategy, thinking about your products and services in isolation. How do you market and sell them? How do you deliver them? How do you manage the customer? So, so you can look at it from a business perspective. There's a ton of other things that support business. But what are the, what are the other parts about delivery of products and services? Or what's an example we have today that's exciting? Is it, is it Uber? Is it um, anybody else have ideas about a, a concrete example of quality deliver delivery today well i i what the, this conversation has brought up for me a, a question of deliverables what does a deliverable look like in reference to a product versus a service um i think one of the key differentiators there is is human involvement um are is is someone's boots on the ground working with you um, does, is that a key indicator of a service um, as opposed to something that shows up in your door as a product? <clears throat> we had uh, over our uh, breakfast discussed a little bit of this experience that I had recently of um, a very integrated system of, of I received a link uh, via Facebook Messenger um, for a particular product that was just a, let's, uh, let's say a shovel. It wasn't a shovel, but whatever. <laughs> um, and the relationship between uh, the, the, this, the, this ease of integrations of systems between uh, a link that uh, came to me via Messenger that wired up very easily to a known URL at Amazon, which hooks into um, uh, you know, a, a, a payment system that, that subsequently hooks into you know, Federal Express or however this uh, shovel is gonna make it to my door. And that ultimately, that that is a good experience of of a deliverable of a particular product in as much as a link in Facebook Messenger when one click equated to a shovel on my doorstep um, within a couple of days. And there's the old way, like comparing that, for example, to you could have gone to the hardware store and you could have been sold a shovel by somebody or you could have been there just looking for it. But yeah. Um, I guess, so So we have one distinction where it's kind of like the digital 
modern experience of using the internet to and and it's almost like just the mobile communications it's almost like the internet doesn't even matter anymore as an idea it just happens to come to you delivered to your phone versus you have to go it's clicks clicks uh, versus bricks type of thing that's right right and uh so you you've described a clicks sequence a modern click sequence today where in a few years, the drone will bring you the shovel quite soon. And that the shovels were sitting down at Ace Hardware, but the drone picked it up and gave it to you because you didn't want to drive down there. Right, right, of course. Um, I think about the notion of you know service versus delivery. Um, part and parcel of that whole equation is that it's a shovel that I'm going to use as opposed to shopping for a ditch. Right. <laughs> where, <laughs> where someone might come to your house and make that ditch for you and, you know, I don't have to... Well, tools versus outcomes, right? Yeah, like, right, right. Yeah, who's, who's doing the work? One of the things that I really see in that is that in order to successfully ship or deliver that product, there was a bunch of kind of bundled services or productized services behind it. We don't know exactly what the revenue model was for, you know, the click connection on all of these different pieces, but we can say that in order for somebody to deliver a successful product, they teamed up and made themselves compatible with all of these different service providers. Yep. Another kind of example of the abstraction of services into products is Amazon Web Services, where we don't really see the people. You know, they were, were buying distinct services like you know, we're running servers or we're running networks and we're billed by the hour for those. And so it does seem to be about service on some sense. But at the same time, we don't see the boots on the ground or any people behind it. That's right. It's it's merely a server that boots up when you tell it to and the infrastructure that went into place to, to make that happen. Ironically, though, of course, we always, <laughs> at least people in my field know that there is no AWS for AWS. AWS is actually running that with like a million engineers running on hamster wheels. You know, there's a lot of technical <laughs> debt. There's a lot of growth mm -hmm. going on there. And it's very much probably on their side, a service game, right? They're just ongoing providing right. these services. So well, the distinction we got into earlier was talking about work versus toil. And some of these things, toil being just, uh, you know, linear work that doesn't scale and uh, is really not fulfilling to the people who do it. And work is hopefully more fulfilling to somebody. But one of the questions is, are we eliminating toil? Are we pushing it in places where you can't see? Because it sounds like that shovel process you mentioned, Josh, uh, it seemed to eliminate a lot of the toil involved. I mean... For instance, a salesman appearing to you at Home Depot and selling the shovel. That's <laughs> right, a toil right. type of task. It eliminated his toil. Yeah, yeah. he didn't yeah. have to drive. Yeah. And he didn't have to drive. your toil, yeah. all, you could say that the significant work you did was deciding you wanted a shovel, clicking, and then the shovel appeared on your doorstep. But where, you know, ha has toil been multiplied elsewhere? And can toil really be eliminated? Well, I think I, I, kind of more to the point on products versus services, one of the things that we're exposing in the conversation is the idea that services always exist, but productizing your service kind of abstracts away the toil for the user. And that is part of a model of a successful delivery. It seems like we use product as a metaphor for maturity. Like we define product as good that 
service might be crap. It might be just some human that's talking to you, trying to sell you a shovel or a used car or whatever. Like we, we, oh yeah, that's a service. Great. It's a terrible service, but product, whether it's the car, it could be still a bad car, but I still think we value that product. Um, but it seems like there's maybe a continuum or spectrum where if we think of services as products, then we think of them as more mature and quality items that have more and additional artifacts to them other than just the stupid idiot that's talking to you on the phone. Possibly product is an interface, is, I do is think the so. mature interface of a service. I think so. So one thing I was curious about, Ellie, you mentioned you worked for an innovation consultancy. So what motivated people to uh, hire them? Very interesting. I mean, I think that what it comes down to is particularly because I'm in cloud computing, there are a lot of companies that have heard that, you know, you can save money and you can scale better and there's all these advantages to cloud, but it's a whole different thing to say that you're actually going to go there. What exactly does it mean? And DevOps as a practice, infrastructure in general, is completely abstract. We can't say that I mean, in fact, many years ago, I actually took a Linux class, and when they said that they they had named it the cloud because it was nebulous, it didn't really matter like where that stuff was or what was up there. You were just sending it someplace into you know a cloud, and it's very funny nowadays because I actually build the cloud, and it can't be nebulous to me. So what brought people to the innovation consultancy? on my side was the idea that they needed to move into this very nebulous space and it was an innovative space and they wanted guidance for that. So someone to make it concrete. So your approach in that company was productizing what you provided to them, but were they adopting the same approach? I, I take it most of them were providing some service to somebody else. Yeah, I would say so. I was one of the providers um, in the case of the previous example, the shovel, you know, where it's like, are you going to get the clicks? Nowadays, it's very interesting to see that infrastructure has become so specialized that, in fact, most the, the really popular model is to sell infrastructure as a managed service instead of actually selling infrastructure as individual products. If you think about it, it's a lot easier to go on AWS and click and be like, I need a server than to order server hardware and spec it all out, get it delivered to a data center, have a data center guy and all the security that goes around that. It's like the heap of products was such a stack that <laughs> therefore it became a service. So you're saying that you're, uh, this, this consultancy, they provided productized service, but the people that they provided it to would then provide a, a service to the, their users. Yeah, I would say a lot of the consulting that I did was in helping people decide whether they should be pro using a product or using a service. Like where is the line between you want to manage things internally and you really want to get down with the details? Sometimes you can save a lot of money if you're going to work with individual products and combine them to make your own service. In other cases, it's much more economical just to grab a service and put it into your pipeline. So one of the things I was just thinking about in relationship to this is really about um, outcomes and how much time does uh, working with an AWS server save you as opposed to buying all the hardware yourself and writing a black box and building, you know, hardening it and doing all the work that comes with producing a server like that. Um, 
So what is the outcome of that service? And essentially AWS has done a fine job of providing a, a solid hardened environment by which we can use in a variety of different ways. And so the outcome of that service is really, um, well, I, I think it, I wouldn't draw a distinction between product versus service in the sense of, of, uh, of, of AWS, but you know, how, um, how much value and how much time does that uh, 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 product slash service bring you? And, and essentially, you know, it's sort of a litmus of how successful they might be, right? And how, uh, just in, in the sense of, of how easy it is to use AWS versus buying your own system and setting up your own system. The virtue of, of productizing a service of like, if you even have what you consider a service that you want to deliver, and making a model of it that you can sell more as a product is that it gives people uh, an impression, again, of maturity, of consistency, mm. and a set price for what those services mm -hmm. are. Yeah. Whereas typically, like service being more human was fuzzier. It, it seems like people might even be mitigating primarily needing to interact with humans that maybe we see no greater waste than needing to waste somebody's time in a toiling sense dealing with my stupid self and my stupid problems. Therefore, if those people on that side of the fence can get more mature and capable and so forth and expose what their value is as a service and, and with a facade on it to a degree so that I can just interact with it and, and use it, then I'm, I'm better off than needing to negotiate with a human and deal with sales and marketing and people and just junk. You know, for myself, and, and this is my day-to-day, -day, um, we use uh, uh, not an AWS interface directly, but basically a shell that's been built over AWS. Um, if I go to work on a ticket and I make a branch, um, I have essentially two or three clicks to roll up a server and deploy that code to you know a known URL. That saves me an immense amount of time and ultimately the organization an immense amount of cost, right? Yeah, in fact, I've seen that a couple times where things that we already think of as fairly intuitive services have layers that are customized and built on top of them to make them even more simplified. So that's a trend that we see where I think it's kind of like the, the craftsman ideal during the Industrial Revolution was not that goods would be just mass-produced, but the idea that you could have mass customization. Hmm. And that's one of the things that we're kind of seeing as a goal um, at least from an infrastructure standpoint. Do, do we think, just a kind of a consensus question, do we think that um, modern consumers today want to take people out of the process? Like, are we so kind of focused on quality and technology now that we want to kind of take people out of the system and we feel sorry for those hamburger flippers and <laughs> nobody, the people at McDonald's you know, Nobody misses the cashiers. You right? know, we've gone to ATMs. And yeah. while there's a lot of concern, I think, about keeping things human, especially in medicine, for example, it the, the quality of service and what we understand as service today, service is not a natural thing in a democracy. It suggests that you have a servant, you know, and we don't idealize that in a way that where somebody can be proud of being a servant. And so in that sense, it's really changed and it's become somewhat unnatural to our ideas of equality to have a person in that position. Yeah. And as a result, 
what we've demanded as well has been more and more consistency to a point where we're actually scripting human beings to do their job. And that's very awkward too. I mean, everybody hates to call customer service and just get stuck in a loop with an actual human being. That's worse than being stuck on the phone, you know? Yeah, yeah. Great. Okay. Well, let's take a quick pause. So that we're just kind of kicking it off there, talking about what what is the delivery of products and services. What are some difference between the doing it for a product, doing it for a service? What are some of the commonalities? So when we come back, we'll just take it to the next level. Very many business attorneys, CPAs, and other professional services companies in Seattle are receiving great benefits by using Abstract Business Services. Abstract's technical business consultants quickly assess and apply the latest techniques and methods to make practices truly fly and businesses develop. Contact us today for more information at info at abstract.com. All right, this is Eric Veal. We're back with the Abstract Capable Communities podcast. Today we're talking about delivering products and services. I'm here with Josh, Steve, Ellie, and Andrew. And uh, in the first segment, we were just talking about kind of what, what it is and some differences and um, the next segment, we want to talk about more of the moral implications of it, and in particular, the, the role of humans that we would prefer to have as we design more and more technology and services and infrastructure and just junk that we hypothetically need as people. What is the role that we need to save for humans? And so one of the, one of the examples that Josh gave was, how do you ever replace a human as a massage therapist? Like you can create all kinds of robots and and machines and so forth to massage you good but what's better than a human massage nothing so you therefore hypothetically can't replace that do you want to do you not want to so what yeah i so i had a i had a a mountain biking experience a couple summers ago and i broke my collarbone i hadn't gotten uh, too much massage prior to that but as a form of treatment um this uh this ended up being um one of the one of the more um, useful aspects of, of my you know kind of therapy uh, getting getting out of that um, sort of a situation and I just made the the comment of of I have a shiatsu chair thing that you can kind of sit in and it kind of works your back a little bit and and that's fine um, and in lieu of an actual massage therapist that might be a good answer but that fundamentally is not something that we have technology to replace, nor do we have much of a desire to replace, I think. Yeah, Actual I would, human touch, yeah, right? I would, human touch is extremely important. Uh, there are a lot of old studies that show that when humans do not get enough touch early on in development, when they're a child, uh, that this can lead to all sorts of mental health disorders and actual physical disorders. Um, and so touch is really very important in developing attachments. Uh, and and I, I don't think how we can get away from touch uh, or actually working with hu- live human beings and interacting with them in a very personal way. So, so to be healthy and well, what are the functions that we should reserve? And I'm looking at Steve right now, but what are the functions, like touch being an example, um, I can just think of all kinds of communications and just like closeness things, intimacy things. Um, what are the, the roles or functions that we should plan to reserve for humans and what should we not automate? What should we avoid automating? Well, I think we all need a certain level of social connectedness. So there's a need where we're social creatures and we need to, um, uh, you know, really relate to others. And when we don't relate 
connect with others, then uh, we, we become more depersonalized, uh, we become unhappier, uh, and I think, yeah, I think we need to, re we need to have that going on. Uh, whether that needs to go on with if you're buying a shovel or not, huh. uh, that's another, another question. Uh, but I think there is a need, human beings have this need for, for mutuality, to, to connect. How, how does environments or kind of nature fit into it? Like I'm thinking of it like from a context perspective. I think that if, for example, you include nature going for a walk in the woods, I couldn't, I couldn't make any argument for that being artificial or what have you. Um, I suppose in a virtual reality sense, I could go for a walk in the woods, and blah, you know, in virtual reality, and, and maybe it has similar properties and aspects to to nature, but it's not really the real thing. Well, the thing with nature is that it's unpredictable. Uh, so as you're walking through the woods, whatever you're seeing is unique and unpredictable to a certain degree. Even if you've been on the same trail, you'll see different things. And I think that's part of what it means to really interact as a human being is to be surprised, is to deal with the unique elements of one another, not just what the common features are. And when we look at something like buying a shovel or, you know, the, the thing we're talking about in automation, uh, there, there isn't that unique property anymore. And we, we do have a draw to uniqueness. Uh, and it's uniqueness then that we also are able then to develop new ideas. Uh, it's not through the commonalities, it's through the anomalies, it's through what's not there, uh, through the differences. Uh, and so if you make everything the same, uh, you know, through various clicks and, and through automation, you eliminate that capacity to really discover what's new, what's novel. So interestingly, my, my first job was in a hardware store, and I spent five years <laughs> selling people shovels, essentially. Um, and um, what would I say? It, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a fine experience in terms of repeat regular interactions with unique individuals, people who I knew and people who I didn't know. Um, I think it is not unreasonable to say that that interaction of going to shop for a shovel and actually have some involvement with a person, um, as a as a as a benefit of business, I suppose, but just as a as a nicety of of speaking to someone and having that experience, that's probably a better option um, than click click click. But you know, we this is I guess this is the topic under debate, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, what you're talking about is good service, mm. and again, good service is something that is deteriorating, mm. and it's deteriorating because we don't like to see servants. At the point when being a servant had real social value, or there, where we appreciated the social value, because I have to say that you know our servants, our civil servants, and our servants even in a restaurant. When somebody does it right, you cannot replace that, you know, but I've really seen the role of service, particularly in restaurants, move from something where you, the ideal was to be seen and not heard, where it was invisible and very graceful service, to something where your servant is now more of a guide through the options that you have, they give you the special. I even see like the humanization of service in restaurants where a waiter will sit down at the table with you <laughs> in some places now and be that kind of a specifically human interaction, where as opposed as opposed to like the older model where the um, the servant was more of an all-knowing, all-seeing robot. Yeah. Now we it's interesting because that 
waiter or waitress who sat down with you and spent some time with you and got to know you maybe a little bit, you're probably going to reward them with a fatter tip. I mean, let's be honest. You could, you could certainly order a lean cuisine or whatnot off of Amazon and it will show up and that would be basic sustenance. But it's a fundamentally different experience. Um, and really, I mean, really, if you're, you're comparing these two, two things, a, a lesser experience. You know, in terms of uh, in, looking at the uh, medical industry, if we're looking at the medical industry, um, outcomes, uh, successful surgery outcomes can be dramatically affected uh, if a doctor spends like 10 or 15 minutes talking to his or her patient before the surgery. There's, uh, there's less use of pain medication. Uh, the amount of time spent in the hospital is less, quicker recovery, and that's just a little human connection that can have a profound effect. We, we've talked in the past, so when we were on the, actually Andrew and Steve who are both here in the studio with me today, we, we did a, an episode and Christian was on it as well about um, delivering, pro, or sorry, uh, developing products and services and we were talking about it from the context of chaos theory and, and that's kind of what comes to my mind, Steve, when you say that is, is there's, there's a human touch and and really small things can have an extremely huge effect. You could maybe say the same from like amazing technology blew my mind and you know my life was changed because I watched that movie or whatever it was or I saw the thing on on uh, HD but but it feels it felt like part of what you said there Steve is that um, there's ripple effects or what have you to small human interactions that go so far but you could I think make the same argument against that technology was really cool. Well, human human interaction has a quality that uh, humans can in, can anticipate things that uh, machines often don't. Josh, you went into the example of hardware stores, and I don't know if services like hardware stores provide are becoming scarce because servants have low uh, social quality, or if it's happening because it's difficult to scale that business model. Because, uh, well, I've been to Hardwick's Hardware, one of the last traditional hardware stores in Seattle, and uh, they have deep domain knowledge that would be very difficult to program a computer with. And uh, like Amazon is not going to ask what kind of project you're working on, mm. and they're not going to have experience with uh, you know people who have used this tool for that project and talked to them about how it worked for them. So that's a situation where uh, clearly there, the human factor can outweigh algorithms as they exist now, but that human factor is not scalable. So business doesn't like uh, systems that don't scale, and that's a big reason that those things are going away now. So it's interesting you point that, that experience out of, I mean, because a lot of my role in that position of selling shovels or whatever it might be was... Um, sort of telling a story or communicating with this person about, you know, what's happening for you? What are you trying to solve? And let's kind of in a, in a kind of holistic sense, figure out a solution. And it might be fixing a chair. It might be picking a, a specific drill type out. I mean, those were experiences that I had. A, that was, that was, that was my job. And storytelling. Well, you mentioned storytelling, yeah. which is interesting because that's what a lot of these processes lack. When you talk about online shopping mm -hmm. you talk about uh, these automated service guides, a lot of the conversations around uh, these things become stories. When you talk to a hardware store uh, 
sales uh, guy, he'll tell you about the, uh, you know, this thing has been used in this way, and I know a guy who tried this, and it worked well for him, so you should, uh, you should try it. It often boils down to a story, and story and narrative are a fundamental part of human cognition that a lot of these expert systems don't quite get right yet. And I was just about to say... What is our what is our analog for that in the in the digital domain? Well, it's user reviews, right? People telling stories about what they did with this product. Yeah, although one of the things that's there that's very different, I think that the a good service really provides is that they can expose the problem, and in order to be able to solve a problem, you have to define the problem. Mm -hmm. And so, user reviews, people are saying. In a good user review, they'll tell you exactly what their problem was, and then they can say how it was solved, but it puts more of a burden on the user to come in and read a bunch of reviews to try and find a like use case, whereas a human might be able to get that out more easily because ultimately one of the reasons why good service is so useful or good human service is that in interrogation to discover the story. And in some cases, what you discover in service is that what people really want is not about the product, but is the human attention. You know, I, I think that this is something that it's very difficult to say that there are people who still go to a bank instead of an ATM because what they really want is not about the, the exchange. Yeah. It's um, of the money or it's not the actual like product per se. It is the service. Yeah. So when you make a model and you're talking like, am I delivering a product or a service? One of the things that you need to consider is where is it appropriate to inject the human as part of your brand? Yeah. And I, I think choice and mm -hmm. options is part of that as well, or tools and methods. So Josh and I were talking at lunch that about the automated driver, basically driverless trucks was the conversation. And so you have this hypothesis that says shipping and trucking and whatnot, like could be hundred percent automated with machines. I think it's pretty believable. And then, and then, so for example, you could create a company that is driven on the mission to provide efficient shipping of trucks and using robots and so forth. And so it has lower cost and other benefits in using that method. There's an opposite or alternative method that uses all the humans that want to drive trucks and employs them to do so. And it's a fantastic job for people. So it, it gets back down to, I think, literally like human cognition and values and or the market is we're not as humans, I think, willing to do one and only one thing or make one and only one decision of just say that is necessarily better because we like options. And we like variability and like Steve said, of just like randomness is like, oh, you mean I could go do that or have that or whatever? We like options. And so we still as businesses need to design in, you know, do stupid things as businesses even to create excitement. Yeah. And it's delivery options in that case is that, you know, you're talking about the channels that people will use in order to get what they want, you know, in order mm -hmm. to procure something and what their motivations are. We, you would have to do a lot of user experience to understand where those channels are. Yeah. That's going to be part of your successful delivery. Yeah, I think there's a market and price for everything. And I think from a design perspective, businesses have to at some point limit those channels and say, I'm not going to focus on all things. I'm not going to do it in all these ways. So uh, a business entity can't do 100% of the bandwidth. They choose to do 25% so that they can focus. But then from a, a marketing customer perspective, there's still 75% open 
for creativity and other methods. Yeah, getting back to your idea about, about automation of truckers, I think one of the, my major concerns here would be what do, you do with all the, what do you do with all these people who no longer have a job? They're yeah. unemployed. You know, how do we, what, what do we do with these people? Um, I, mean, we, I mean, there's been lots of, clearly a lot of changes historically in terms of, like, you look at agriculture. I mean, most, Ameri- most people long ago used to work in agriculture, and now very few people work in agriculture. And, the, you know, our economic system has been able to shift and change uh, to provide those people with new kinds of jobs in industries and now in high tech. And, but the question becomes, you know, when you begin to uh, lay off, you know, 10, 20 million people because now you've automated trucks, what, what do you do with those people? Yeah, and my idea about that, I think the word that has to be used at least initially to think about it metaphorically is displacement, is I feel like you almost, we perceive things as buckets or what have you that you, as you work on systems, the water gets displaced out of the bucket and it's spilled over and it's waste and you screwed up and like, shame on me. So I, I feel like we all have that as designers or whatever in business that when we do good, there's consequences to it sometimes of which are bad and we couldn't have really controlled those things because we were working on other objectives. And somebody else has to have the opposite job of saving the displacement or picking up the fat that was trimmed and doing something with it. So like if you look at it like cradle to cradle types of systems or just reuse and et cetera, you need to think of it like holistically and systematically or as a process that as one person displaces, another picks up the fat or whatever that was trimmed and, the, and there's an opportunity that's created. But I don't think we're trained to think of it that way and we don't have enough capability of using the displacement or picking up the spilt water. Yeah, I mean, the days of the iron rice bowl are gone, long gone, where you could just get in a job and stay there for 30 years. And yet we haven't changed our educational system to be flexible enough so that people can go back and get the periodic retraining that they need. All of this hysteria about there's more automation coming, the robots will take over and people will be out of work at the same point is ignoring the fact that a third of our engineers in the United States are foreign born. Like we need people to, we need engineers, right? We're importing them. And at the same time, the idea that you could take a trucker and make a software engineer out of him is something that people just reject. And yet, I don't believe that that is true. In fact, the reason the guy became a trucker in the first place is because of the educational path he went down that was primed for vocation, that was deeply classist and deeply prejudiced to create people to be machines, you know? And that revolution needs to happen in order for the people to self-actualize and realize, in fact, that they can become new employees or employees in the new Um, in the new paradigm of work. And I will say that I was a professional driver for six years, and today I'm a software engineer. I went back to school for my computer science degree when I was 40 years old. And it's really hard to tell people that that is an option, especially coming from a blue-collar background. It's typical that people want to make me a unicorn instead of understanding that it's a roadmap. Does everyone uh, have the same sort of desire or would... 
Aren't there a lot of people who would prefer a job like driving a truck to uh, software development? I'm not sure driving a truck is that different from software development. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, and that is that is part of the problem, you know, is that there's definitely parts of software development or fields of software development that are not unlike driving a truck or a million other things I did, waiting tables. Yeah, you but, know? You know, but I think the, the I mean I think what uh, is being brought up is you know, people are can be pretty different in this people can be pretty different in the sense that you know some people are very mechanically oriented they're they're not so into abstract engineering math etc and they like doing things they like they like trucks they want to you know drive them they want to they want to do things and I think if if those people are going you know people let's say who like that kind of work. Uh, are going to probably need to find something similar to that in the new economy. So if you get rid of the truckers, the truckers are going to be doing something else, but probably something akin to what interests them. And, and I don't, I don't, I don't think it's all you know that these people are alienated and, and you know they don't they hate their jobs and you know if they could be rocket scientists they would be rocket scientists. I, I think a lot of people choose to be truckers because they like being truckers. Uh, I mean, there's probably people who choose to be truckers who don't want to be truckers, you know, and they are alienated. But I have to <laughs> say that one of the things that actually made me pursue technology, I almost discovered code by accident. But one of the things that made me pursue it is that once I got into it, it wasn't what I thought, right? So we haven't exposed people to the other jobs. A lot of times you become a trucker because you knew a trucker, your parent was a trucker. And this is true of a lot of, I mean, I know people that are third, fourth generation factory workers, and it's not because they love factories. You know, it's like, these were the options. And I grew up in a town of 1800 people. What were there for jobs? I don't think I know another software engineer from the town where I grew up, you know? So we didn't really have our hands on in the technology. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what these new jobs are. And this brings us to the whole issue of education then, that uh, if people are going to be replaced by machines, we need to figure out some way so they can find the education that's going to be fulfilling for them, whether it's being a software engineer or doing something more mechanical that might fit with what they were doing as a truck driver. Well, I haven't seen a lot of, of variety in the new economy and the new jobs that uh, to match the old. And it's uh, like some people, obviously, like some people would prefer a job where they get to spend a lot of time outdoors. Other people deeply feel that uh, they want their job to be something that takes them to many different places as opposed to going to the same office every day. And that's, those aren't things I see in a lot of the touted uh, new jobs. A long time ago, I wanted to be a journalist, and uh, I worked for a, uh, the school paper at the University of Washington, and I got to, I got to go to many places, interview people, um, go, to some, go into some very interesting situations, and I, I did writing and photography. When I started looking into the world of the big daily papers, I learned first that there are no writer photographers at those papers. They're always separate. And if you're a writer, it is essentially a call center job. You call people on the phone and you interview them. Very Only the, the elite of the elite in the uh, publishing world go and do interviews in person. Most of them are just call center employees. Yeah, but hasn't that always sort of been the case? I mean... I mean, if we look at kind of the hierarchy of human labor, there are lots of people doing a lot of menial labor. Uh, they may like the menial labor. They may actually enjoy it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there are people kind of at the top uh, who can do all sorts of things. 
Uh, because well, they have the money, the wealth, the, the power, and you know they have all, or the education, and they, or the intelligence, and they're able then to do a, a large variety of things. Well, certainly, but the menial tasks now, at least, well, you could say the tasks where that allow you to raise a family and uh, have security. It used to be there was a wide variety of those things. Some involved being outside, some involved uh, driving to different places all the time. But now many of the uh, you know, a lot like when we talk about new jobs and new economy, so much of it is technology based and so much of it is, uh, you know, just sitting at a keyboard and typing things. So there's a question as to, uh, you know, do does this does this serve the variety of uh, personal proclivities that the old economy did? Well, what I was going to chime in with is just our own as workers our own um, necessity to be flexible and to, to find the opportunities that are around us and to, you know, essentially backfill any, any missing education that you might have to flex to those opportunities. Um, I remember when I was a kid uh, helping my father remodel our house, uh, pulling lath and plaster off and replacing it with wallboard. And 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 I remember at the time thinking, that lath and plaster at one time was a thriving industry and probably a lot of people did lath and plaster. And then at some point, uh, the miracle of wallboard uh, <laughs> surfaced and those jobs fundamentally went away. And, there, and, and that is not a, there's no moral decision made surrounding that. It's just an improvement of the technology. And, and sort of we as employees or as workers or people, you know, in today's economy, I think are faced with a very similar problem, which is, um, you know, if I, if my job's driving a truck and those trucker jobs are going automated, well, it's, it's up to me to find something to fulfill my, my own needs. I mean, I have to make a living. I think that's, that's more and more going to become, um, uh, necessity, I suppose, and, and flexibility backfilling your own education. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that people kind of neglect in the discussion of the new economy is the idea that it's driven in a centralized way, the old, the way the old economy is. I mean, maybe now we're at a point where that craftsman ideal of the industrial revolution, not as mass production, but as mass customization becomes more relevant. Because when we have opportunities to use technology in all of these different ways, at what point can you make your own job? At what point can you discover some some need that needs to be filled and create your own position around that? Those become the skills and the education and the training, I think. And so let's maybe pause at that. It was a fascinating discussion. So that, that was more about, we were just talking about the essentially like the ethics or the role of people. So if we look at services, we look at products, and then we look at people, what's their role? So fascinating stuff. We'll, we'll uh, take a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's episode of the Abstract Podcast is brought to you by Seatown Real Estate. Rooted in community involvement, providing an exceptionally high-level client experience, we do things differently around here. With our suite of complimentary listing services and unconventional approach, you not only know that you're getting the best worry-free real estate experience, but also the best results for your situation. Head over to seatown.com, S-E-A-town.com, to find out more about our unconventional approach to real estate, or you can email me, Christian Harris, at christianharris at seatown.com. All right, welcome back. We're here talking about 
uh, delivering products and services. This is the Apps Chat Capable Communities podcast. And uh, the segment that we want to launch into now is basically about the future and virtual reality and some of the differences that people might have between values of nature and the physical world that we've kind of been given versus the the created world that we have created and what are some of the issues that this, and opportunities that this this creates for people going forward so that's kind of the entree and I'd welcome any any of the guests to kind of take it away but we're we're just talking basically about the future virtual reality augmented reality the built world and differences in our values between the built world and the thing that we're making versus the thing or the things that we've been given. Well, we're talking about virtualization of human services and human experiences, and we've been talking about kind of the exclusive appeal that genuine human interaction has. But could there come a point? Some people, you know, some people think yes, some people think no. When machine intelligences will be indistinguishable from humans, and if we reach that point, what then are the implications? I think that when we have these discussions, a lot of times people don't acknowledge or maybe don't realize that the human brain is kind of digital. I mean, your neurons fire on and off. And in that case, I consider the idea that, that VR is less is potentially just a matter of fidelity and something that we could capture. If you think about it, when you have a dream, a lot of times it's incredibly realistic. You might be able to smell and taste and completely have this, and yet it is a virtual experience. Yeah, the power of imagination is pretty amazing. The power of imagination is pretty amazing. Um, I, I think the way to look at virtual reality is, is kind of looking at how we imagine. Uh, because we're always imagining, uh, you know, all kinds of things. We imagine conversations with people. We imagine inventions, and what we practice in our imaginations uh, is sometimes what we end up doing or end up creating. Everything in the modern world was at one time imagination. It was something that we practiced. So in a ways, we're kind of doing virtual reality in our minds. We are we are imagining things and making them happen. We're materializing them in our world and thereby changing our world to actually accord more with our imaginations. Yeah, and as far the simulated people that exist in software, uh, many people do attach a lot of imagination to them and they can feel real in some sense. But, uh, I mean, as many... Uh, as many uh, auto dialer calls as I get from robots asking me to sign up for this thing. I still don't, uh, I still can't see those as people, but I, and I don't know if we're going to reach a point where those, uh, those phone bots and Siri and other things can appear indistinguishable from a person, but if they can, you know, climb up that other side of the uncanny valley, it'd be interesting to see what happens. Well, I can, I can speak to some um, experience of the, the current uh, state-of-the-art vis-a-vis uh, virtual reality. Um, this is, I, have a, I have a setup in my house and have been, uh, let's say, experimenting with this and kind of checking out what people have been creating for the last couple of years. Um, uh, to get to that, your point of uh, the, this uh, virtual human within this VR space, um, uh, Steve might be able to talk a little bit more about proprioception, but it's the brain's ability to the, actively and eagerly make something real. You're, you're consistently uh, trying to give, um, your brain's trying to figure things out, and visual input is a very important part of that, right? 
So my experience goes like this, is that there you are in the middle of VR space in this 3D model, which I could go in in 3D Studio Max and build myself, right? 3D model has been uh, animated. It's been given some logic, some cues to interact with you. Um, there you are standing up against next to what sort of appears to be a humanoid thing. There's no way that you're going to go, geez, I, this, is, this is clearly a human in front of me. It's clearly a symbol. It's clearly a, a virtualized thing. But the brain seems to really try and make this real. And my experience goes, goes something like this, is that, that in, in uh, you know, I think about watching a movie where you see a, a human form in a movie, it's, you, you can build some relationship to that and some understanding of that. In the VR space, you're, I, I can only describe it as saying that your brain really tries to make this visual imagery a real thing. And you weirdly start having this moment where, geez, I kind of feel like I'm standing next to a real person. Like in, in, in kind of a weird, sort of creepy almost, creepily uh, uh, realistic sense. Um, uh, we had uh, touched briefly on the point of, of uh, uh, going for a walk in the woods and, and, and how valuable that, uh, uh, that sort of experience is and how humanizing and how, um, how, what an important aspect of life that is. Um, it, I, I, have, I have, you know, seen a very similar, not similar, but a, a virtualized experience of, of that sort of thing, walking through the woods or being on top of a mountain. Um, I'm doing this in my back room in my own, like after work, um, just as a simple practicality. We don't have the we don't have the time to get on top of the mountain every you know evening or whatever. But this ends up being um, a a legitimately interesting, legitimately um, it's it's hard to even describe. It's it's a, a sort of otherworldly experience of being there. I am in my back room, and you got the goggles on your head, and it's kind of goofy, but wow, you're kind of there in a certain sense. Again, the brain is really attempting to make this a real experience. Yeah, I think, we, I think that happens uh, with early, early on in childhood. Uh, kids have imaginary friends. So kids practice in their play talking to all kinds of people uh, who are not there. Uh, we, we, we begin this very early. Uh, so, you know, seeing uh, humanoids in a VR uh, situation, uh, I don't think would be that much different. I think you would see, you would interact, because we already have this practice going on early on. Uh, I, I, one of the things that interests me is, uh, is kind of looking at VR and religion, uh, and, uh, you know, you could create, let's say, a virtual reality of a, let's say, of a church, uh, and go through it, and would that if you're a religious person, would that be any different than actually going to the church? Because a lot of the cues that religious people, you know, when the people are experiencing something spiritual, oftentimes is visual. So, you know, so they see the cross, they, they, they see Jesus, they see angels uh, in the church, and that creates various cues for them then perhaps to have a spiritual encounter uh, with, with Jesus. So if you're in virtual reality and you're seeing Jesus, et cetera, and you're having a conversation with him, is that really any different than having an actual, you know, what goes on in church? Well, the, that uh, has already been explored in science fiction. And uh, in Duandroid's Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the novel that the movie Blade Runner was based on, there is a religion called Mercerism, which is all about... Uh, compassion for all life, which most animals have been killed by the nuclear war in that book. 
and the shared experience that all Mercerist followers have is they have this device called an empathy box, which uh, is apparently some sort of virtual experience projector. And when they grip the handles of the empathy box, they experience the last moments of Mercer, the prophet of this religion, who was stoned to death by an angry mob. So it's basically you walk along this, uh, you know, you walk through this environment and you feel stones hitting you and they actually feel pain from the stones. And it's meant to uh, sort of reinforce the message of empathy that Mercer preached. So that is uh, definitely a way, like that's obviously an experience that can have a powerful binding effect between many people. And that's how it's presented in the book. One of the most interesting uses of VR I've seen recently has been in Taiwan, where they're using VR in their political system to try and build empathy between people. Taiwan, following the sunflower movement, has done a lot of innovation and deliberative democracy. And part of that is the idea that they're just trying to practice listening arts and have people who can't reach each other physically because of constraints, you know, constraints in society. You might not just bump into somebody because you're in a different place, but also in a different class or a different role. And giving these people a forum to like kind of come together. There are some really interesting applications, I think, for VR to actually extend our humanity. I like to think that the cool part of VR is not going to be gaming, but the idea that I can go visit my mother in my mm. backyard, mm. you know? I don't care about the top of Everest. I care about seeing her. So I, I've had a, uh, a big idea kind of driving me forward, and I'll be honest, I'm, I'm interested in getting into VR development. It's kind of an expression of uh, kind of currently where I'm at in my career. Um, this is happening in a big way, and it's uh, a lot of interest. One of the big things driving me forward um, is exactly that. Um, my brother lives in, in uh, north a couple hours, and I don't see him that much. And frankly, we don't talk that much. And the idea, again, back to this, back to this weird thing that our brain does and makes this, this virtual image sort of real. Um, my distinct feeling is that it, 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 you know, the, the the chat application, the VR chat application, is going to revolutionize how we communicate with each other. So if my brother is, uh, you know, say it's a Tuesday evening and we want to crack a beer and talk, you know, work or whatever. Um, you know, it's hard to do that on, on the normal, normal regular, because again, we're two, two and a half hours apart. Um, but if we're able to, you know, put a headset on or whatever this ends up being or looking like, um, and share that kind of a space and actually, actually facilitate communication. I, th I think there's some, um, distinct interest there. And I think when someone really cracks that, when someone really gets that working well, I think it's, it will revolutionize how we um, communicate with each other. Essentially, how, our form of electronic communication will, will gravitate towards that in a real way. Nonverbal communication, from what I've read, nonverbal communication is actually a lot more powerful hmm. than verbal communication. You know, so being able to really communicate for humans is highly dependent upon having body language and having hmm. this kind of context. Even if it is virtual, then hopefully we'll still have some of the cues and it will be an improved communication experience. Yeah, and Josh, you mentioned when you talked about your experience of the, you know, 
in sort of uh, extrapolating human qualities onto figures in a virtual environment. What I heard from you was all physical based. Mm. You didn't really go into verbal stuff. You mostly talked about how mm. you could see human figures and you could project emotional qualities onto them. So I wonder if the, um, if the body language and the physical communicative uh, elements of personhood are going to be manifested earlier than the verbal qualities because a lot of uh, what I've been talking about are verbal human-to-human uh, -human interactions like phone robots, things like that. Because obviously it ta it's a hard job to make something that's, that's convincingly human in speech. But in, uh, in physical presence, mm -hmm. we might get there earlier than with speech. So, well, there was a, there was a game I recall called Journey where you're, a, you know, a, you're this creature in a, a mantle that can't speak but you can jump and gesture and make a trilling sound. And trilling? What's trilling? Thank you. High fidelity, thank you. That's what these creatures do. <laughs> and that's all the communication that exists in game, but players have uh, socialized and interacted and... Isn't, no, it, isn't it a multiplayer? I mean, it is you, multiplayer. Yeah. It, uh, there's no competitive element to it. It's just a, basically a co-exploration experience. But the interesting thing is in, uh, if you can... Well, you know, who knows? There may be some AIs playing that game as well. And it would be an interesting Turing test to see if you could program a machine to play and then quantify if people are interacting with it as, as if it's another player. So that could be the first place where uh, machines and humans reach parity in social relationships is the, uh, the pantomime and the non-physical, or the non-verbal, the purely physical. I actually just read an interesting article about VR and the risk of dehumanizing people in VR. However, there's been sexual assaults in multiplayer VR games, and it's people... A woman wrote an article on Medium where she talked about being assaulted when it was recognized that she was actually a woman playing the game. Then she was actually a attacked by gropers. And the interesting thing about that is that then people, and she felt really violated by it and couldn't quite explain why she felt violated by it. But as you mentioned, there is the, the projection that that is in fact you. Um, one of my favorite examples of this, I think um, his name is Hiroshi Ishiguro, is a Japanese roboticist who builds doppelgangers. And he built a doppelganger of himself and one of his daughter. And his doppelganger can be teleoperated so that he sits and operates the robot, which is a robot mm -hmm. of him. And he's said that when somebody touches the robot, he actually feels it touching him. It's like his relationship to it by just seeing himself and mm -hmm. feeling the touch. And that is suggesting to us that a sexual assault that happens in VR, you know, doesn't have to have a physical attack on your body to still be an attack and to have the same kinds of psychological implications. Yeah, I mean, well, that's it, not it makes... that's not a new thing. That happened. There was a story called a rape in cyberspace, which was about a chat room event. So that has happened in pure text as well as today's virtual environments. So people can associate almost anything with themselves, whether it could even be just a, a textual chat handle. Yeah, someone doesn't actually have to experience the trauma 
a real trauma in order to be traumatized. So lots mm. of people could witness an accident uh, and develop PTSD even though they're not in the accident. Uh, so, it, it, you know, if somebody's getting assaulted in the VR, yeah, they, they could be traumatized. They could end up with possibly post-traumatic stress disorder. I would say this, the person, you know, who were assaulting, um, when, when people assault people, it's, there's a sort of common belief sometimes that when people assault that it just sort of happens spontaneously, that it just sort of kind of comes out of nowhere. And in general, what, when people do things, they've practiced it a very long time. So somebody who's a groper doesn't grope, doesn't out of the blue just grope once. They've been groping a lot. So when they go to the VR, you know, uh, uh, simulation and, you know, they're going to continue their groping uh, because they're practicing it. And they practice it through imagery. Again, the VR imagery and their internal imagery in our minds, we are constantly practicing. So one of the things we're going to have to think about in terms of, I guess it might be in terms of moral issues, is what do we want to practice in VR? Do we want to practice, um, as you were suggesting, empathy skills, like in Taiwan, and develop a sense of empathy? Or are people going to practice shooting each other or groping or, you know, I mean, it's, and, 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 and part of this is going to be based on what we've been doing before, because we've been practicing this in our mind, visually doing these things. One of the common, you know, there's, there's no such thing as, I think, a, a passionate murder. People who usually murder or kill have practiced the killing thousands and thousands of times in their mind before they do it. Wow, you've just creeped me out so bad. <laughs> I, yeah. So I think that one of the things, too, that the Japanese roboticist brought up, though, was, and we know that Japan has maybe a little bit different idea of this because they do have, you know, rape comics, but part of the idea for him was that people could put themselves into deviant or high-risk situations mm -hmm. to experiment with their own morality or their own risk. So I, I just want to pull this back a little bit to um, much more practical, pragmatic sort of scenarios. And this is something I think about a lot. Um, let's go back to the hardware store, right? So for all, and taking into consideration everything that we just talked about and the, the strange sort of reality that this actually kind of engenders and a weird sort of humanness that we place on this. So imagine um, one of the scenarios, say, say there's a virtualized hardware store that's a place that you actually go. So it's a URL that you actually go to and now you're in this place. Now maybe there's a well-coded AI bot on the other side of that trying to figure out what kind of a ditch you want to dig or whatnot. Maybe there's actually another person on the other side of that and we've, we've facilitated communication in such a way um, that you know, that interchange is, is as realistic and as, or as valuable as, as the face-to-face -face at the actual hardware store. And so maybe, maybe that is one, one way that we kind of move things in the future, that, that, that again, that click, 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 and there's a shovel on my door, is more of a, I'm going to go to this place. I'm in my back room. I've got my gear all on, scuba diving in a video game sort of a thing. Maybe you go to this place, right? And there's an actual hardware store that you're wandering through and someone's going to help you try and figure out the best shovel for your uh, particular ditch. I mean, that to me, or, or the other thing I was thinking about was a, a, um, you know, a banking environment. Would, it, would a bank environment be fundamentally superior to um, pulling out your bank app on your phone? And I, I don't know. I, I kind of... I, I think it's going to happen whether we, whether we, you know, like it or not, like that is going to be rolling out. So, 
Yeah, I guess just a, just a basic question or curiosity about, you know, how, how we as consumers or how as we, we as, as service providers are going to be interacting with this crazy new place. I think that um, there's definitely uh, some scenarios where, in fact, we trust more when it's not actually a human. Mm-hmm. But as we discussed outside of the podcast, there are times when having a human interface makes things really much more efficient. Like they're using um, kind of humanoid robots in Japan to in nursing homes for care. Mm-hmm. And that came mm-hmm. from the difficulty of getting immigrant labor and the difficulty of teaching them Japanese. Mm-hmm. Then it actually became more practical to make robots. And for what it's worth, in a lot of the research, the patients, the, the robots were going around like giving people drugs and they did facial recognition to make sure that they were administering the drugs to the right people. And the patients really liked the robots. You know, it wasn't a liability or shoveling something off on a person. If you think about it, would I rather have a human doing this like a cranky, trapped human? Or would I rather have like a smiley robot? You notice in Japanese media, there's all kinds of like smiley, happy robots. You know, they're not so much into the Terminator situation. Another place where we've really talked about whether it's better to have a robot is in the case of politicians, where it's very hard to tell whether a politician is corrupt or not. Mm. You know, we would like to be able to just like program a thing to authentically represent us. And it's very unclear to non-politicians like what politicians are actually doing or whether they're acting in our best interest. So the trust trust factor, especially in an open source politician, if you could just check their code, would be a nice feature. That would have been my first question for the AI politician who is writing their code and what <laughs> hidden subroutines may they have added. <laughs> On the other hand, why would we even need politicians uh, if you know the internet advances further and further and virtual reality? Uh, why why do we need politicians? Why can't we just directly vote through our machines? Uh, and make decisions. And yeah, maybe we, we need people to carry things out and develop some policy and the intricacies of any particular law. But, you know, why can't we just make this more democratic? And I think that's the sort of the positive side of, of automation is, is that maybe we will be able to make the world more democratic, not less. Help, help, the, uh, help the politicians be successful by getting out of the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, that's great. So um, I guess we'll wrap it up, um, or at least we'll cut to a new segment. Um, so that was that was the segment that was about. Um, <laughs> I can't think of what we were just talking about. That's silly. What were Virtual what was our? Well, yeah, that was our whole future context. So well, it's super fascinating. Yeah, go ahead. Off. Yeah, you talked about um, help the politicians help by getting out of the way. Well, politicians are motivated by a desire for fame, prestige, power. What if you could simulate that in a virtual environment? What if everyone who would go into politics is instead directed to plug into a virtual world where they will be supplied with a steady stream of cheering crowds and, uh, you know, uh, CNN interviews and, you know, distinguished panels. And uh, they can, so they can indulge this desire in a way that does not uh, harm others. That's an interesting idea because back uh, in hunter-gatherer societies, there were sociopaths. Clearly, people who you know want to take over and run people's lives, uh, but they were pretty mar- fairly marginalized because there was lots of choice in, in hunter-gatherer societies. They couldn't gather so much wealth, uh, and, and 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 oftentimes these sociopaths were either driven out or made fun of and didn't gather the power. 
that they have now. So maybe we could figure a way out that, uh, you know, that the sociopaths could, you know, uh, indulge. Mat indulge in their sociopathy <laughs> without actually her harming others. And, we and wouldn't we, actually have to draw bombs to make a point. Then we go back to Ishiguro's idea that, that VR has a place to be deviant and to explore your deviance. Well, speaking of verbal AIs and phone AIs, uh, one time I was talking to a guy with a company, and this company had a co-founder who was uh, just total, uh, he had apparently made a few million dollars in a business venture earlier. That was the peak of his life. And all he did was sit around and come up with cheesy ideas and waste people's time. And uh, you know, I suggested, what if they could stick this guy in a back office and program a robot to talk to him? It would be the yes man robot. He would talk to it on the <laughs> phone, and he would say, blah, 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 this is my idea. It would wait for him to stop talking. It would say something like, oh, that's brilliant. I wish I'd thought of that myself. Oh, that's great. And it, he would talk to this thing all day, and it would keep him out of everyone else's business. Oh, that's great. Uh, so I, I did have a few kind of maybe closing thoughts or question to leave us with, and and uh, we'll we'll see if we can we can just wrap it up and not answer the question. But some of my thoughts on this are, um, I like the fidelity comment a lot, and I think there's another comment there about channels or like sensory channels. Like you can look at it from the context of uh, visual context or auditory context or touch context. So like if you break it down into the human and our senses there's a fidelity question there about just how complete is that fidelity between what you would be able to get in the real real world and what we could eventually create in a virtual world. I think that to me is just a big question that's worth pondering and thinking about of this fidelity question as we go from the real world to virtual experiences that become more and more real and higher and higher fidelity, what will that mean dialogically or like what will what will we even be like then and i think we'll be the same is the truth but we'll have better experiences and we'll have more capabilities and context and things and services and it'll just be better i'm, I'm at least leaving it on that <laughs> if you have a business product or idea that you'd like to promote please send an email to info at abstract.com and we can talk to you more about how we can use our platform to help you reach your audience a little bit easier Welcome back. This is Eric Veal with the Abstract Capable Communities Podcast. We're in Seattle, Washington, in West Seattle on a sunny spring day. And I'm here with, with Josh, Steve, Ellie, and Andrew. And we're talking about uh, delivery of products and services. And the conversation we wanted to have right now is about differences, which we see as very central to an issue, which is back to this conversation we talked about earlier, but basically the role of humans, but more specifically in the context of work or employment, uh, my mind would say this, that there's, there's three possible categories of work involvement, at least to start with, is one where we find meaningful work that we love and enjoy and we're employed and, and we feel grateful for the role that we're providing in some larger system or outcome or whatever. Uh, there's a second type, which we've defined as toil, which has a clear definition, which is, and I don't know the definition, somebody else could speak to it, Ellie can speak to it in a minute, but toil is essentially repetitive act activities that don't scale well, and they're just kind of dehumanized things of just doing the same thing over and over again. I could think of, you know, manufacturing jobs that I've had in the past. And then to me, there's a third class of this, which I think of as basically slavery 
or some degree of nightmare where your involvement in a process is coerced, unwanted, um, and, and something from which you cannot escape. And so examples of that might be some cult that you've joined and can't leave, some role in a relationship that is a bad nightmare that you have to continue to live. But so this, this, uh, so this part of the conversation is, is really about these three types of work and, and what does, and it's, a, it's obviously related to delivery and the human role in delivery, but what, how can we create more of the good and less of the bad? Like what would the policies and governance aspects of that be? What would it look like? So I really got interested in the concept of toil. For a long time, my work has focused on automating procedures that were previously processes. And I believe deeply in automation as a kind of liberation technology, as do many people in my field, that the idea of the work that we're doing, part of it is eliminating toil. And the definition from Google's SRE, Site Reliability Engineering book, um, is really good on this. They say, we define toil as mundane, repetitive, operational work providing no enduring value, which scales linearly with service growth. So, you know, the idea is that toil is this thing, too, where it's going to continuously eat more humans into its stupidity as it grows. And it's really important to, like, keep that at bay through automation. Will, will, we, well, find, will, we, find, will we become guilty? So there's been examples, I think, that we've talked about, about, like, feeling bad for your Roomba, for example, um, and like the poor Roomba is toiling in the corner and it got stuck and it continues to like, I think, feel like as humans and emotional beings, we don't want anything or anyone to toil unless it really is some robot that we've created to just do that toil. And, and, um, I don't know, there's, there's all kinds of issues about this. I think of like creating these roles. It's a design type of issue of what do we want the humans to do? What do we want the robots to do? But then in particular, the humans, how do we create more meaningful work? How do we create less toil? When there is toil, how do you, how do you recast those people that were toiling to more meaningful work? And then on the far edges of it to me where you're, you're tied to the whipping post and doing just nightmarish tasks that you would rather not be doing, what do you do in those situations as well? And to me, it's all in this context of help and consulting or change management or whatever it is, but it's, it's a huge problem and a huge opportunity. So the question is, is just these robots and all the things and the stuff, still the role of people in the ideal jobs, how do we create the ideal jobs and, and use the human resources correctly? I, I want to first disagree with the idea that automation is a necessarily a good thing. Um, primarily because I, I haven't seen automation really lead to distribution of wealth in any real equal way. Uh, most of the wealth, most of automation, wealth that comes from automation goes to the top and doesn't really go to the bottom. Uh, what I see happening, and again, this doesn't necessarily happen to happen become of automation. Maybe this is an issue of more of economics and economic theory and policy. But what seems to be happening is as we increase automation, we are having more and more poor people in this country. We are having greater income inequality, not less income inequality. You know, there's, there's sort of a rich class of billionaires, and we have sort of a professional class, middle, and the middle class has been disappearing. It's been disappearing for 20, 30 years. And I don't know if this is only due to automation, but clearly the way we're dealing with automation isn't working. 
Again, I, I think automation could be beneficial, could get rid of a lot of toil, uh, but I don't really, you know, from what I can see right now, there's a lot of toil out there. And in fact, there's more toil than there ever has been. And the other thing uh, about toil, especially with the, uh, the Google SRE definition that uh, you, Ellie, mentioned, is that seems to reflect a very specific philosophical and cultural viewpoint. And uh, many, many other philosophies differ on those points. Uh, in many peasant cultures, they, uh, they kind of look at repetitive work as a meditative thing and a, uh, a practice. It's seen as a, a part of life and not uh, something to be dreaded. Of course, in many more traditional cultures, the, uh, the toil tasks have more variety than, say, in an industrial context. But uh, the thing about, you know, and many, many people are of the opinion that uh, there should be toil in the workplace and that it's something that provides a sort of bedrock of experience, like I'm particularly thinking of some Japanese companies. But when you, you know, the thing about non-toil tasks is they tend to be constantly changing and require a great deal of uh, you know, they require constant creativity. And maybe sometimes you don't want to have to constantly readapt to new things. And often, uh, you know, it's not all people can keep on adapting. And the, the downside of some of these, uh, you know, constant innovation tasks is that many people do get lost in the shuffle. And the, uh, of course, the current business culture is all about culling the non-performers quickly. So this, they're all factors to consider. I want to address the idea of income disparity and automation because at the crux of that is the idea that automation itself is not taught as a skill. That automation is kind of a rare skill that's making some of us like buckets of money. <laughs> and then people who don't know how to automate are left down at the bottom. Like I give a, a I do quite a lot of public speaking and one of the talks I give is automation is your superpower that everyone has a place in their life where they can start automating. And when you look at successful people, one of the things that comes up is that they are capable of handling more information. Even an executive um, delegation is a kind of automation, right? Giving somebody a, an idea and having them go. And where you're going to rise and where your income is going to go up is possibly directly dependent upon how effectively you handle information. And so the idea that these two things are, um, are conflicting is really about the basis of the information to start with. You know, that the critical skill is the skill of automating. The education and, is critical yeah, here. And, that's, and so it's not automation itself. Automation, like all technology, is profoundly immoral. The idea that we would teach automation is perhaps the way to unplug that relationship between automation and income disparity. So automation is a skill or task. I guess talk, talk more just at a high level, like in simple language about even like what is the skill of automation? Because I mean, so for example, it's true if I think about the verb to automate or whatever, just like the task of it. It's true that that's something that I've been doing for probably like 15 years now or something like that, you know, that it's been like a predominant action as somebody in IT and whatnot that, that I just do that all the time. And I know that I've literally displaced people through my work. And so not only do I enable and, and create new opportunities for people to interact, I also automate things that literally take people out of the process. So I'm aware of the coin, 
but I still don't know what the coin is, what the coin means, why I do or use the coin, but I just know I've been given it. Yeah, so I can tell you that one of the things that I have witnessed is that um, a lot of women get stuck in kind of low-level, unautomated jobs, in part because they do not value their they do not recognize the value of their personhood enough to take the step to automate themselves, right? And part of this is what their relationship is to the rest of their company and the rest of their work. You know, you have to have time in order to automate things. You have to be able to learn how to analyze your process. You have to have the technical skills to carry out that automation to implement it. And you have to be valued for automation within the context of your company. In some cases, I mean, I, <laughs> I've actually said you'll be fired for writing code three times before you'll get a job doing it. And I really came up through the ranks in a position where I started automating things because I couldn't stand toil, right? And for me, it was just like a rejection, even though many of my automations may have failed and gotten me in trouble. Like the idea that I was worth more than toil was a thing that kept me going and eventually led to a point where now I'm a master of automation writing code for, you know, JPL. So you have to have that, um, that, personal, uh, that personal recognition of what you are contributing. And you shouldn't, you're not, nobody is really contributing toil, right? Do you cont- but you contribute automation. Like you, you say like the thing you're creating is like processes or threads or capabilities or value or whatever. Like there's some, some core substance that you're creating, like the spider web that you weave is, is value, et cetera. And you continue to yeah, do I mean, your tasks. I, I think the assumption here behind automation is that it's increasing greater choice for the employee or whoever's working. There's more choice, it's more meaningful. And I think that's the positive side of automation, but there's clearly a lot of automation that doesn't do that. I don't think we can reify the construct of automation and say that it's just good. I mean, clearly when somebody was a cabinet maker and they were making their cabinets individually for each person, there was a lot of of pride in making that cabinet. And now somebody might be working in an industry where they, you know, put one nail in <laughs> as down the assembly line. And, and yeah, that's automation, but I think it's more toil. So I, I think the, the issue here is, is not so much automation. I think automation could liberate and create less toil. But the real question is, is one around how do we create more meaningful work? How do we create more choice? And maybe automation is one of the ways we go about that. But automation doesn't necessarily lead to that. And again, we get back to more the issue of income inequality is when things are automated, who, who's, who's the beneficiary of this? It seems so far the beneficiary are people who are at the top who now have a lot more free time and a lot more money to do all sorts of things. And so automation has helped them. Well, the automators, too. You know, I mean, it's not just there's the person who provisions and pays for time for somebody to automate. But automators, you know, I mean, when we say it's like automation is going to lose 50,000 jobs in just this industry, it's like, well, you need a whole bunch of automators to pull that off. Right. So how do we get to educate, you know, how do we create an an educational system that can help people develop the meaningful jobs and jobs with choice and, and that, you know, that lead to less 
alienation and dehumanization. Well, this seems to tie back to what we were talking about before when it comes to virtualizing other people or virtualizing relationships. Because you said uh, you felt that women didn't value their personhood that you'd spoken to. Now, by that, do you mean like they felt I am valuable and that I do things for people? If I write something that does something for people, that takes away my value. They, in a lot of cases, what I've witnessed is that they regard their jobs, when you give them a job, then their first analysis is to get the job done and not think further ahead to like, how many times have I done this job? And in every case, they're trying to please, you know, the guy who gave them the job. And part of the, the idea is, is that you as a human shouldn't be doing toil. That's how you escape toil and learn to automate is that you refuse it. Like, nobody's going to just, like, necessarily give you that time. And that's so the definition of this, this yeah. mindset ties the relationship to the toil. So maybe for education that will uh, transform people's thinking toward automation, there must be some way of associating an improved relationship to, uh, you know, to automating a task you know, I know this job no longer has to be uh, done in a rote way, so I've contributed to the organization in a uh, major positive way. I wanted to touch on something that Eric and I were talking about earlier, which is, which is work and toiling are somewhat on a spectrum, right? One job could be wonderful until you have to do it until your fingers bleed. And that's so much about perception and self-perception. What do you, what do you feel brings you value in the work that you're doing. Well, cabinet making probably felt a lot less toilish when you actually got to present your cabinet to the, no, uh, I, the I, new owner. I, I agree with that. In, in, the notion, in the notion that a highly automated cabinet factory, you're literally just putting screws in and that's something clearly a robot could do. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't devaluate. And in fact, it, it actually places value on the handcrafted cabinet maker, you know, and if you're going to put a house together, you might have, cheaper cabinets that are automated to come out of an automated more of an assembly line. Well, the key but here is that what you're talking about is, is there's a certain merit when you, when you're the cabinet maker and you're, you're, there's a, there's a merit to it. Your people value your work. There's a quality. If you're just putting a screw in, what's the merit? So, you know, I think one of the things is people are, when people have more decision-making in the workplace, when I, as a worker feel that people are listening to me, and that what I'm doing is actually based on merit uh, and accountability, and that the people above me are also based on merit accountability, that then leads to my feeling less I'm doing toil. I, I, even, even if I'm doing, you know, sort of simple stuff, right, right. if I know that I have some, some choice, I have some say of what's going on in this business, I can affect the management and, and do something about that, that makes it less toilsome. It's when I'm a robot, when I don't have any voice, when I have, you know, it's all top-down authoritarian management style uh, that, that then makes it appear as toil. I know people who work in high-tech industries or doing what you would think highly creative jobs, and they're demoralized. I, I, and, and, they, and it's like toil for them. So I, I've been in situations before. Yeah. You talk. You talk about the notion of slavery. I mean, I've been in the middle of projects sometimes. That you know, I'm. I if I get engaged in a project, I'm engaged through to the end. Like that's something I take very seriously. Um, I've been in scenarios before where multi-month projects, multi-month projects, and then you feel like you're in a situation writing your you know seventy two you know seventy second hour of the week and 
and man, you're still writing code. I mean, you know, quality is going to drop a little bit, but you, you're still pushing it forward and there's deadlines to be met and there's no way out of that. I mean, that feels an awful lot like toiling, even though it's my craft and one that I love and, and given a certain amount of it, let's say 40 hours, um, I can be fully engaged and, be, and have a really rewarding experience that comes out of that at the end of the day. But that same job, again, this is a spectrum, that same job, that same, that same project that I'm working on feels an awful lot like toiling when you're in it on the 70th hour because and you, you can't get a, you know, it's 14 hour day after 14 hour day. So automation as a practice, maybe automation even as a spiritual practice mm. is saying that you recognize toil when you come across it. And for me, again, I'm an automation engineer and I could never do my job if I didn't recognize when I'm toiling. My whole job is about getting rid of toil. So at that point, the way I look at it is that on an ongoing level, when I hit places where it starts to feel like toil, that's a target for automation. Now, I'm fortunate in the fact that I am encouraged to automate, right? That is my job. But I do believe that if you want to get to that point where you have more time in your life or the part of your job that you're doing is the part that you enjoy, that we all have to embark on a personal journey to automate, to automate our own toil away. And that's not just about society saying like, now we're going to have robots doing this instead of that. It's about where can we all automate and therefore become less victims of the institutional automation Does, that's coming around. Doesn't this come back to that, uh, who said it works smarter, not harder? Is exactly. that Scrooge McDuck? Or something yeah, like that? I mean, yeah. to make that fundamental decision that you're going to use automation to liberate yourself. Oh, I agree with that. And as a thought process, I, I have uh, friends that I grew up with that one's a doctor and one's an attorney and they're, what I picture to be kind of like conservative feedback to me is, is work harder. And, and as an automator, it's the worst advice I could ever receive, right? Is like the more I toil and the more I stress about what I do, my quality goes down. I'm less creative. Forget about it. Like that's just the, the worst feedback I could possibly receive. I need to, I need to work smarter. I need to associate with more better people. I need to be more creative. Like there's a whole skill set that's required for a creative career or like a meaningful career other than like I'm just in it for the business of taking or making money like there's a crass way to look at commerce or business or what have you that's exclusively about delivery from the angle of of extracting dollar bills and that that people might have a way of of justifying their particular role in the world but ultimately it's about taking and making money but there's other individuals who are probably more working in the business than on the business that are automating and are producing and and need to have a mindset other than work harder because they're already working harder they're already toiling they're already suffering they need they need a different mindset a different story that's more important for success and you know craft is not toil and that's one of the things that comes up in that japanese philosophy that you you know throw a million teacups to get the one good teacup the there is definitely a a practice in craft where you have to practice it and you have to learn all of the pieces. But the end goal of that is not to forever keep, keep doing the same thing. It is the idea that through the practice, you'll understand the task so that you can do it right once. And 
in a sense, that's also, I, I wouldn't say it's a practice of automation, but it's a practice that is saying that through repetition and through making something mechanical, you will find this grace that it will come to you automatically. I think that, I think uh, the job clearly has a major impact on how toilsome something is. Mm. But I think also the work environment has also a tremendous impact on toil. Uh, and you know all the studies out there, we, I'm sure we're all aware of them, show that when people you know, find their work meaningful, when they're, when they're appreciated, when they're communicating, when they're listened, when they know it's based on what they're doing is on merit, that they, they work better regardless of what's going on uh, and they enjoy their work. Uh, and I, I think you know the, the thing with toil is, is that when you have a system that's more democratic, a management system that is not so top-down and authoritarian, that leads to people feeling less less toil. And I would even go so radically to say that you know if we got rid of owners and we had everything owned by the the workers or the people, and I'm not saying there wouldn't be a hierarchy and made it all purely democratic. Again, not that there wouldn't be decisions made by people, and you know you, you can't have everything you know a, a vote. Uh, I, I, that would even add more, I, I think, uh, a sense of meaning and value. Uh, and because a lot of people at the top, um, you know, I don't know if they're there because of merit. Uh, maybe they're there because their daddy gave them a bunch of money. Maybe they're there because they're not so smart, but they went to Harvard. I, I don't know. Uh, but very clearly, when what pe demoralizes people at work a lot is knowing that people above them are not there because of merit. Hmm. And that is demoralizing, and then it makes your work feel like toil. Well, that's great stuff. So uh, this is the Abstract Capable Communities podcast. I'm Eric Veal, uh, here today with Josh Bosworth, Steve Kubacki, Ellie, and I can't say your last name. Go ahead and say it. Ellie Moonjelly. Moonjelly. <laughs> and, uh, and Andrew Single. And so I want to thank my guests for being here. Today we talked about delivering products and services. Uh, we just kind of closed out there talking about really the supply side of delivery of how, how do you how do humans push these things out and what are some meaningful contexts that are important for people as as workers today and um, and so next time we'll talk about managing customer service which is to say we've we've done the delivery we're kind of done but there's this one last step of all those people that are still standing around and what do you what do you deal with those how do you deal with those stakeholders so thanks for listening. Uh, check out check out all the episodes uh, and mention us to your friends. Thanks and have a great day. You've been listening to the Abstract Podcast. The creator and host of this podcast is Eric Veal. It was recorded, engineered, and produced by Christian Harris. You can contact us and find all our show notes on our website at abstract.lipson.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. If you like what you hear on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. You can also find out more by going to abstract.com meetup to get more information on this month's topic and the corresponding meetup group that Eric hosts in Bellevue, Washington each month. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month for our next episode of the Abstract Podcast. This has been a Seatown Media production. Find out more at seatownmedia.com, S-E-A hyphen townmedia.com. Media